The good thing about him is his constant metamorphosis. It seems inconceivable in 2013, but there once was a time in which literary types actually appeared on late-night television. He does re rebear himself like the phoenix, and uh, what the next incarnation will be, I don't know. That's Gore Vidal on the December 15, 1971 episode of The Dick Cavett Show, and he's addressing Norman Mailer who isn't taking this very well. Mailer has we all know that I, that I stabbed my wife many oh. years ago. We do know that, Gore. You were playing on that. Now, come oh, I'm not to forget about this. Well, no, you, you don't want to forget about it. You're a liar and a hypocrite. You were playing on it. But that wasn't playing a liar or a hypocrite. I wasn't going to talk about it. The fact of the matter is that people who read the New York Review of Books know perfectly well all they know all about. Vidal and Mailer are so involved with their verbal bitch-slapping that they don't seem to understand how they're boring the pants off Janet Flanner. You act as if you were in private. That's the odd way. It's the art I of television, isn't it's it? It's very odd that you act so... You act as if you were the only people here. Aren't we? They are here. He's here. I'm here. And I'm becoming very, very bored. Mine. <laughs> But Mailer turns on host Dick Cavett. What Mailer doesn't realize is that he's about to be humiliated before a national audience. Who wants to grab this on our team? <laughs> no, I, ne I, ne I nearly have it. It means something to me. Finger bowls. Finger bowls. Things you dip your fingers in after you've gotten them filthy from eating. Uh, am I on the right track? Am I warm? Why don't you look at your question sheet and ask a question? Hey, can I talk to the audience for Why don't you fold it five ways and put it where the moon don't shine? It's easy to dog on Norman Mailer. He stabbed his wife Adele and didn't suffer any consequences. He helped to get Jack Henry Abbott released from prison, where Abbott proceeded to stab a waiter to death. He stood against women's liberation. There's an undeniably savage quality to Mailer as a writer and Mailer as a man. Hey! Will you cut this fucking idiot out? When Mailer passed away in 2007, I wrote the following words. What did Mailer give us? What was his chief contribution to letters? Mailer as king of the universe. Mailer as knowing egomaniac. Mailer as hypermasculine creature of the day and night. Mailer who never listened to anybody but himself. Mailer who, if he considered your work, did it because he wanted you to know that he was Mailer and that you were not Mailer. These, of course, were the impetuous words of a young hothead blogger who had not yet read The Armies of the Night. It is true that Mailer was everything that I described six years ago, but he was also one of the most fiercely impetuous, wildly original, and unapologetically emotional writers that the 20th century has ever known. A man who made sense of the political confusion that ailed America, and a writer whose spirit is weirdly inspiring amid the turmoil of today. My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. I met up with J. Michael Lennon, Mailer's official biographer and the author of Norman Mailer, A Double Life, to discuss the conflicts and contradictions within Norman Mailer's legacy. Okay, so I'm here with J. Michael Lennon, who is most recently the author of Norman Mailer, A Double Life. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Very good to be with you. Very good to talk with you about uh, one of the most enigmatic and unusual men in American letters in the 20th century. So I want to actually get into uh, this book by tying it into the recently published collection, Mind 
of an outlaw, which sure. I also have right here, and I have also been reading. Uh, Jonathan Lethem's introduction contends with thoughts he had previously voiced in an essay that was collected in The Ecstasy of Influence. Uh, he points out that he buried the man before I even began to try to figure out how to praise him. Um, part of accepting Mailer, I have found, and I have found when in both reading the biography and reading the essays and reading various other work, you have to put up with the fact that he will say something utterly brilliant one minute, and then he'll say something utterly foolish the next. Um, he will trash Waiting for Godot without actually bothering to see it. He will dig himself out of a hole of his own making. So why do you think Mailer, just to start out here, could not really control these expressive impulses? Why did he need to court disaster? Well, you know, some questions uh, answer themselves by being asked. Uh, he couldn't control his <laughs> impetuous nature. He was, uh, I've said it many times, yeah. he was the most impetuous person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. He if he felt the instinct, he followed the instinct. And that's that's part of it. His notion of uh, the existential life was listen to what's going on inside you. Don't pre-plan everything. Don't have guidelines and rules and restrictions and guide ropes. Jump into life. And uh, what did he say? It's better to expire as a devil in the fire than an angel in the wings. Yeah. So it was part of his nature to be that way. And so he got himself into a lot of trouble with the feminists, with literary critics, with his friends by being uh, impetuous, outrageous, saying, you know, in his literary criticism, uh, I felt that it was like sitting next to him, you know, in a little bar in Provincetown, uh, drinking bourbon with him and, and listening to him tell stories about Gore Vidal and James Jones because his literary criticism can't be separated from his yeah. intimate personal knowledge of them. This is the rare case where you actually have to know his life to know his work. Yeah. Yes, I think you do. Yeah. I really do. Well, the title of this book comes from a famous passage in Mailer's essay, Supermar Superman Comes to the Supermarket, uh, where he points to how American history was moving along two rivers, one visible, the other underground. Uh, Mailer, he also spent much of his life trying to wrestle with uh, this saint and the psychopath duality, uh, which he was later to apply to Gary Gilmore. You've traced the origins uh, of this to Mailer reading Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. And I'm wondering to what degree did Mailer's dualities come from concepts he read and he wished to sort of hold on to in his mind and wished to play around with this kind of elastic, impetuous nature of expression? Um, I think that that the reading came a little bit later, but it was a confirmation. He was forever finding confirmations for what he sensed were the two people living inside him. And uh, if where did that come from? Well, I think initially it came from the fact that uh, when he was a young boy growing up in New Jersey and in Brooklyn, he was the center of attention. Uh, everything was focused on him. And yet when he went out into the, the Brooklyn streets, he was a skinny little kid. There were a lot of Irish tough guys around. Uh, he was fearful, he was timid, he was small, and uh, he realized that there was this, this gap between the two sides of his life. He was no one on the streets and he was everyone at home. Yeah. I think that was the beginning of it. And then he looked for confirmation of that uh, in places. And when he read Kierkegaard saying that there, wasn't, there, were, there were a lot of connections between the saint and the psychopath yeah. and their passionate way of living their lives, he realized is the clue and I think that was one of the clinchers for him yeah absolutely what's interesting though is that you point out that there really isn't a lot of information about his high school days right. uh, and and I'm wondering you know what what searches did you do to try to find something out I mean mm -hmm. it's just everybody was dead or nobody wanted to talk what happened here um, 
most of the, most of his high school kids, uh, you know, my chief sources for his high school years uh, were some of the other biographies that people interviewed some of his friends, but also his sister. Yeah. His sister and her best friend Rhoda, two uh, young women who were a couple years younger than, than Norman, but watched him. They knew his girlfriends. They knew what was going on. They found him to be an utterly charming person. But, you know, he didn't, Mailer said that, you know, his life was kind of quiet. He'd go to high school. He was, he was, everybody thought he was studious, quiet, boring. And when he went home, he had to do homework. He had to go to Hebrew classes, or, you know, uh, uh, religious classes, and which he loathed. But he went anyway for a long time. And there wasn't really that much time. I mean, the friends that he had said, you know, Norman didn't get out much. They kept him on a, on a close leash. Yeah. Uh, I know that there's just been a, a somebody just wrote a piece in the uh, New Yorker blog. Richard saying, Brody, yeah. Richard Brody, wonderful piece. But he said, you know, Malin never wrote uh, a Brooklyn novel. He did. He wrote a, a, a novel called No Percentage. Yeah. And it's set in Brooklyn. Yeah. He also wrote 30 short stories about Brooklyn when he was in college. So, you know, writing 30 short stories, writing an unpublished and unpublishable novel, which is set in Brooklyn. Uh, and then, of course, Naked and the Dead has a, a couple of real Brooklyn characters in it. Writes Barbary Shore, which is also a Brooklyn novel. I think he was sick of Brooklyn by the middle 50s and he didn't want to write about it anymore. And he he felt that not much happened to him in high school. There wasn't an awful lot to write about. He wasn't, he was a good student, but, you know, good students were boring. Yeah. I mean, everybody was, uh, athletes were the, were the heroes. But it was rather curious. I thought Brody's essay was extremely interesting was. because he seemed to think that because he couldn't actually look backward in adulthood, that this crippled his ability to write fiction. And he had a lot of trouble at writing fiction between the years of uh, Naked and the Dead and mm-hmm. Armies of the Night. So, yes, I did. mean, is there any kind of biographical information to sort of back that up? Did he make any kind of uh, plunges into his boyhood uh, after these stories you had mentioned, like in later years or anything like that? Uh, no, Brooklyn was always a touchstone. He compared it when he wrote Miami and the Siege of Chicago, he compared Chicago to Brooklyn. He said they were very similar. The, 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 there was a lot of life. There was a lot of reality. There were authentic people. He, he liked that about both Brooklyn and Chicago. Of course, he wrote uh, An American Dream in 1964 yeah. and 65. That was a Manhattan novel, but um, it was still a quintessential uh, novel. And you got the feeling that Rojack was a guy who had escaped from Brooklyn and made it in Manhattan. And, of course, in those days, that's what you want, everyone wanted to do if they yeah. were from Brooklyn. They wanted to make it in Manhattan. So um, I think that Brody makes some wonderful points, but I, I kind of feel that Mailer wanted to, didn't want to get bogged down in Brooklyn. Oh, there's another point, too. I was talking to Mailer's sister about it this morning, and she said, well, you know, I can tell you another reason he didn't want to write another novel about Brooklyn. She said he read Meyer Levin's novel, The Old Bunch. Yeah. And as well, it's said in Chicago, he read and he goes, this is it. He's caught the middle-class Jewish family. I can't ever improve on this. And he, he loved that book. Yeah. So there were multiple reasons for it, but also I think the fundamental reason was Mailer wanted to play in a bigger stage. Yeah. He wanted New York State, and that wasn't big enough for him. He wanted the America to be his stage. He didn't want to be seen as merely a Brooklyn writer. It's interesting how he really admired Meyer Levin, but actually dissed Augie March, which yes. to my mind is yes. the quintessential American novel. I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. Yeah. Um, but I think Mailer was so competitive with uh, with Bellow. Yeah. He rarely had a good word to say about Bellow until the 80s. Yeah. Everything said about Bellow. Bellow was 
basically a professor who was spewing out his old ideas from his classes on the, the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and he wasn't really getting on and experiencing life, uh, which Mailer felt uh, he was doing. So, yeah, he was... Did he have a good word? He, you know, I, I think his literary criticism is good. He, he finally admitted when he read uh, Henderson the Rain King, he said, all right, I, I'm going to eat crow. Yeah. This is a hell of a character worthy of Huckleberry Finn. So he had that, that generous streak, but it vied with the competitive streak. Yeah. I wanted to actually uh, get into Mailer's politics. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I, I noted this. Uh, it's worth pointing out that when Mailer ran for mayor of New York in 1969, he received 41,000 votes in the primary, 5% of the vote. Uh, that is actually a good deal more than Anthony Weiner, who received a mere 34,192 votes <laughs> right. in the recent primary. Um, times have changed. <laughs> but uh, you point out in your biography that Mailer came to politics late. You have uh, Jean Malacuy. Um He prepares this political tutorial from Mailer that he engages in between October 48 and March 1950. Uh, and before this... Basically, he's relying very much on Spengler as his guide. Yes. He seems to have uh, spurned, he, he was spurned on to run uh, for mayor because of the success of Superman at the supermarket, which has actually large sections that don't have anything to do with politics and is more almost a kind of continuation of the white Negro. Um, so I'm wondering about this. Why didn't politics factor into the mailer psyche earlier than this? Did he need to actually be ushered in with the attention and the adulation? Is, is that how this worked with him? Or? Yes, it is. You put your finger on it. Uh, he found out that he could be a player. Remember, in 1948, he campaigned hard for George Wallace, made 30 speeches That's right. in Hollywood and mainly in New York City. He put his heart into it. He thought that there was the progressive elements were going to win. Wallace got slaughtered. He got like a couple million votes in the entire country. Mailer was completely alienated, and that's, of course, when he sort of began to go underground yeah. and, and the village voice and all the years moving into the country, yeah. trying that out, moving to Perry Street in the village and trying that out, flirting with the beats and so forth. And then when Clay Felker, uh, Clay Felker said, you know, Mailer is, uh, Mailer's got huge ambitions. He says he wants to be president of the United States. Maybe he'd be a good guy to cover the 1960 campaign and, and so forth. There was no plan to write necessarily about Jack Kennedy. It was supposed to be about the convention. Yeah. Well, Mailer was just blown away by Kennedy's good looks, his charm, his war record, and all that. And he wrote the piece. And then he gets a letter in the mail from Jackie Kennedy telling him it's the best political writing she's ever read in her life. And it's fantastic. And why can't anybody write like that? And, uh, and Kennedy wins. And Mailer yeah. immediately says, well, you know, I helped win this election for Kennedy. I might have shifted some votes. Yeah. And it's possible he did because um, Esquire was a hot magazine then. People were reading it. Uh, based on that, he decided on the spur of the moment, within a, a week or two after that article had appeared, he decided to run for mayor of New York City and jumped in two feet. His sister told me, she said, you know, we thought he was crazy. You know, know, we're a middle-class family. He has no political connections, no ties. We thought he was nuts. Everybody thought he was nuts. But this was in the period where he was, uh, had Napoleonic aspirations. I mean, you know, he was... He was he was right on the edge of uh, you know being going really nuts. At well, that yeah. Time. Well, the other other interesting thing about Kennedy, which is actually quite funny, is he is very insistent in that essay. I highly doubt that he that uh, Kennedy would have said that he had read the Deer Park yes. before making the dead. But we learn, oh, au contraire, he was advised, hey. 
Jack, if you really want to impress him, why don't you mention that you, re- you read The Deer Park rather naked than dead? And so he was so willing to believe that he was the king. And, 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 right. I, and I'm wondering if just having those blinders on really kind of is what propelled him. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating that, that a figure like that could, could last. I mean, it's inconceivable today yes. that a figure like that can just operating off of pure, impetuous blinders could s- still be you know, fairly revered, even in this wandering period where he's writing for the, for the Voice, all these crazy columns and all that. Well, you know, the question of whether Kennedy read the Deer Park is a very vexed question. On the one hand, Kennedy says it, but we know he was brief to say it. Yeah. Uh, Mailer said, well, even if he was brief, that shows that his his advisors had yeah. good instincts, and, and Kennedy hired him, so I like him for that. But then he got the letter from Jackie Kennedy, and she said in the letter, I remember Jack reading it on the second floor of the house in uh, uh, Hyannisport, and he did read it. I mean, she I don't know whether somebody prompted her to say that yeah. or, or whatever, and, she said, and then I read it. She said, I read it when, when I was out on the campaign with Jack. So whether he actually read it or not, I don't know, but... You know, it doesn't strike me as the kind of thing Jackie Kennedy would make up. How important would it be to do that? But maybe she did. The Kennedys were were notorious for attention to detail. My theory is is that uh, Jackie actually read it and Jack did not. That could could very well be. She's covering his ass, basically saying, well, I I happen to read it too. And then she can talk about it with Norman because guess what? He's not going to talk with Kennedy again. No, that's a a good... uh, that's a good appraisal. That's that's very possible. It worked out that way. Yeah. Um, I want to get into Mailer's filmmaking, which was, to my mind, utterly bizarre. <laughs> you, of course, have this famous cult moment of you know the oh god, oh my god from Tough Guys Can't Dance. Uh, you have Mailer casting himself as the Irish sheriff. Right. You have this strange, of course, violent moment where Rip Torn comes running at Mailer with the hammer uh, during the filming of Maidstone, which is captured by D.A. Pennebacher. Uh, the atmosphere on the set was tense, but I, I was wondering, I mean, Mailer, <laughs> they wrestle. Uh, they, Mailer bites Torn's ear. I mean, what provoked this bizarre assault, and, and how were Mailer and Torn able to be buddy-buddy after that? It's just so utterly bizarre, that clip, which has become a viral sensation when it has been on YouTube. Yes, it has. And... Um well, it's a long story, but, uh, you know, the, the long and the short of it is is that the, the scenario that Mailer created when they filmed Maidstone was a situation was that he was a famous movie director named Norman T. Kingsley, yeah. and that it was given, it was the assassination summer. That's when it was set, after Kennedy had been assassinated and, and Andy Warhol had been shot, Martin Luther King, the whole thing. And he was one of 20 people that the country was considering maybe he could run for, for president. That was the context. However, there are a lot of people who hated him yeah. and wanted to off him. And so consequently, he had a group of people that were protecting him, the cash box, and another group of people who were actually trying to, to assassinate him. And Riptorn was involved in both groups. And so that was the, the whole notion was somebody's going to try to kill Norman T. Kingsley. And so when he ran after him with a hammer, he said, Norman T. Kingsley must die. Yeah. So he was essentially trying to complete the film. Pure method. Pure method. And Mailer was, of course, furious at the time. He bit him on the ear. His ear, you know, blew up yeah. to huge proportions. You get infected, and you don't want to get a bite on the ear. It's a, you can really get a bad infection. But then Mailer recognized when he was cutting the film that Torn had been right, that he had essentially encouraged, enticed Torn to attack him, and therefore he had to do it. And, of course, he saw that that was the logical way to, to uh, 
Torn was, you might say, more Mailerian than Mailer uh-huh. in figuring how to finish the film. It's so uh, interesting to think about that since he's uh, settled down with Larry Sanders and all that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, here was a man who took out advertisements in the back pages where he would quote from his bad reviews. Um, he also, you know, there's also this funny incident you have in the book where William Buckley sends, his a book, sends him a book, and there's this little note in the margins in the index entry under Norman Mailer saying, Hi, Norman. Um, you know, it seems to me that to some degree, Norman was playing himself, but others were kind of playing him. I mean, to what degree in this period before Armies of the Night was he kind of a fool on the New York literary scene? He was a fool on the New York literary scene. Uh, he was all over the place, and he was a person who had promised a lot and delivered little. Yeah. Oh, sure, he had the Superman comes to the supermarket. He had the naked and the dead. But what was he doing, you know, in 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, all those years after the stabbing? He wasn't doing very much at all. And um, so he was seen as kind of, you know, a big question mark was over his head. Lots of talent, no delivery. Yeah. And I think the, 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 the breakthrough for him was the decision to write an American dream as a serialized novel, which no one had really ever tried to do since the 19th century. And even the 19th century, Henry James had all his novels written in Hardy before they were serialized. You've yeah. got to go back to Dickens and Dostoevsky. So Mailer took the dare, and he didn't write it ahead of time. He was just 60 days ahead, yeah. and he pulled it off. It was... Um, what, Joan Didion said, uh, the, the only real New York novel since The Great Gatsby. Yeah. I mean, it got mixed reviews, but it showed this guy has a style, has metaphoric power such as we have not seen for a long, long time. He was at the height of his powers then. And uh, so that was the big breakthrough. And um, every book that followed for the next, what, six, seven, eight books were all... Uh, nominated for the National Book Award, or were bestsellers, or were well-received by the critics. That was 65 to 75 are his great years. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's this wonderful essay, uh, in fact, it's the title, you know, Notes of a uh, Mind of an Outlaw, where he goes into what the writing of the Deer Park cost him, um, the battles he had in trying to get that published, and then he goes ahead and, and has the ultimate, you know, gun to his head in terms of deadlines with an American dream. I mean, it seems to me that, that he was spending much of these years trying to figure out how to write. And the only way he could write was to have the most ridiculous form of deadline imposed upon him. And then, of course, he became feverishly prolific. I mean, you know, wh- why, why did it take him so long to, to develop this kind of really um, convoluted form of discipline? <laughs> Well, I think he, you know, initially when he began writing novels, he was thinking of the great tradition of European novelists, Thomas Mann and Flaubert, all the French novelists especially, who would immerse themselves for years and years in a single masterpiece like, like Madame Bovary, like yeah. The Magic Mountain. That was his model for many, many years. And then it, uh, he realized that he set the bar so high, uh, it would take him so many years to write this novel that he wanted to write, that in the meantime, number one, he had to earn money, and number two, he had he was enticed by the American scene. Yeah. I mean, he was. it was as if America was beckoning him, saying, we need somebody to write about this phantasmagoria that's going on in the U.S. of A. in the 1960s, and Norman, you know, essentially appointed himself to that role. So... Um, then he found out that when he was writing about real events, when he was when he was writing about the events in America, he could write really fast. Yeah. He could write tremendously. He could do 10,000 words a day. Yeah. He was writing like Thomas Wolfe wrote. I mean, he was just churning it out. The novels went really slowly, laborious revisions and changes and so forth. He never could get going. And he realized that 
look, maybe I'm a sprint writer. And he found out that he was a sprint writer. I mean, he never gave up his aspirations for the big novel, never. But he realized that when he had to write uh, about, let's say, uh, Muhammad Ali prize fight for Life magazine in two days, he could do it. Yeah, but he couldn't actually fulfill many of these really ambitious novel no. projects in the 70s. I mean, he wanted to write a series of novels that was just beyond any kind of scope, really, where he wanted to go from the beginning of time in Egypt all the way to the far future, and, and of course, involving Norman Mailer as well. Involving Norman Mailer. I, you know, why, why did, he have to set, did he have to set these kinds of really crazed ambitions in order to... I guess, have a reasonable form of productivity? or Well, remember that in advertisements for myself, he promised to hit the longest ball. Yeah. And so that promise was out there, and a lot of people remembered it. And, and, you know, people would always keep saying to him, how's the big novel coming? How's the big novel coming? And, of course, it was a series of big novels, which you know so well, and you just described the, the last one. Uh, or next to last one, because Harl, uh, the Hitler novel was yeah. supposed to be one of three or four. Um, he set the bar too high. Uh, then uh, events overtook him. He was he was uh, um, enticed back to writing journalism, to writing about current events. The money offered him was very good. Larry Schiller knocking on your door saying, yeah. uh, Norman, I'm going to solve your financial problems. we got to go to Utah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, when he recognized that Gary Gilmore, who, who was the guy who was going to be writing about, he realized that Gilmore was a real-life example of the saint and the psychopath, and he, he dropped the big novel and went to Utah, paid off his debts, and, you know, even though he wasn't, he, he had high hopes for it, but he didn't realize that he wrote the book that probably will be considered his masterpiece. Yeah. That's but it, the irony of it. But the, Well, the irony, too, is that he needed something rooted in reality in order to produce fiction, and, and, and arguably The Naked and the Dead could also be in that same kind of category because his fiction is so sporadic it's, yes. it's either actually goes back to you know the Lethem idea in his first essay where Baylor is parts nothing but parts yes, I, I mean that. That, 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 is, that is really what, what you have to contend with when reading Mailer and with yes. wrestling with Mailer and it's almost I mean it's, it's odd because I talk with writers who face the predicament of wanting to out Joyce Joyce and by actually being humbled in that endeavor um, they actually find their voice but in Mailer's case he, he couldn't be humbled it seemed I mean I mean, why didn't he have any sense of humiliation, or was he just his own... Um... Well, no, I think he did have a sense of humiliation. I mean, I know he said uh, toward the end of his life, yeah. when he was asked what his greatest disappointment was, he said that I broke a lot of promises and yeah. books I was going to write. He said, that's my greatest my greatest uh, regret in life. More than Jack Henry Abbott? <laughs> More than Jack Henry Abbott. I mean, <laughs> Jack Henry Abbott was a... Oh, it was a... Uh, he never forgave himself for Jack Henry Abbott, never. He admitted that he had blood on his hands. Uh, in my mind, he admitted he had a lot more blood than he did, than he actually did. Because I've read, you know, recently reviews and a lot of things that say, well, Mailer led uh, 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 the charge. He was in charge of this huge effort to spring Abbott. He wrote a letter saying that Abbott was a good writer. The Abbott got out because he ratted on people in the prison. It was the only reason he got out. The people out there in uh, Utah... Uh, or where, no, he was in Marion then, yeah. uh, Illinois. They didn't know who Norman Mailer was. They had no idea. We got a letter from a guy named New York, a New York writer saying that uh, it, it had its influence, it helped, but it was one of a half a dozen letters that people wrote attesting to his talent. Mailer, Mailer's big regret about uh, about Abbott was that he was so busy in his own life, he only he saw Abbott at dinner. Yeah, Norris took up all the load. 
Yeah. All the she dealt yeah. with him. She was the house mother. She told him, you know, not to get mad. How he could buy clothes. Where do you get a toothbrush? All this stuff. She cooked for him. She was sweet to him. Uh, Norman didn't have time for that. He was at his studio every day writing, and he regretted that. He felt, look, I helped get the guy out. I should have been there. I should have had him at my side. That that halfway house. Uh, down on the east side was a dump. It was a place that, that just made people crazy, and I, I should have done more. Well, what's also interesting about this is that, yes, he is coming and spending a lot of time with Mailer's family, Abbott, and people are noticing his paranoia, his erratic behavior, the fact right. that he's just seething with anger uh, when they take him out into the world and they, they shop for him. I mean, this to me is extraordinarily astonishing. Was it something about Mailer's ability to believe, hey, this guy is all right. They, they believed in Mailer because he had such charisma, or was it something about the culture of the time where they had things like Nim Chimsky going on, you know? Uh, Abbott was a, was a sad case. I mean, willing to punch out the guard at yeah. the Metropolitan Museum because he, when the guard told him to put out a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. But remember, when he was with Mailer, he was chilled out. He was very calm because Mailer was his hero. Mailer was his helper. Mailer brought him up to Provincetown. Mailer introduced him to his daughters. Mailer had him, and you know, Mailer did more with him than anyone else. Yeah, there were a lot of other people in the literary world involved, but Mailer was the guy he led after he came out, even though by his lights he didn't do enough. So when Abbott was with him, he was chilled out. But I remember, and I'm sure you will, that in the book, uh, the guy that was the head of the Fortune Society saw Abbott on television. Good Morning America or the right. Today Show. And Mailer and, and Abbott was on, and they could say that Abbott was, you know, a bundle of nerves. Yeah. Angry, upset, you know, belligerent. And they called up and they said, look, they called the publisher up and they said, get word to Abbott. We want to help him. We deal with prisoners who get out. We know how to help them adjust. Abbott got the message said, no. Yeah. So... Abbott murders Richard Adden, and the press conference that follows has the famous quote by Mailer, putting people in prison and turning the key on them. That is the cellar. That's the ground floor of fascism. A democracy involves taking risk. And, of course, this infuriated, rightly, (laughs) the reporters. Um, You know, why do you think uh, Mailer tended to fall back towards politics or national identity when coming to grips with something where he was clearly guilty and, and, and remorseful of it, but... The way he would explain it was often through this kind of strange ideological filter. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, Mailer believed that there was um, uh, always some uh, residue, some morsel of good, and, uh, some enclave of good in, in the worst of people. Yeah. You know, in Hitler, in Oswald, in, in, uh, in, and certainly in, uh, in Abbott. And consequently, he felt, he, he believed greatly in redemption. Now, uh, he, I think, overemphasized what literature could do to save your soul. Yeah. But nevertheless, it, to him, it was an ennobling pursuit. And he believed very much that when the reviews of that book came out, Abbott was going to be a different person. He was going to go off to the, to the, the writer's colony. He was going to go to the McDowell colony. He's going to live in nature, and he's going to become a great writer. And he's going to put it all behind him like a la Jean Genet. Uh, he was utterly wrong. The transition was miserable. It was horrible. Abbott was ill-prepared for anything outside of prison life after all those years in there. I mean, he was he lived in the belly of the beast for, you know, 30 years, yeah. and um, he couldn't handle it. So Mailer believed, you know, he was saying, essentially justifying his own reasons, like, I was, I believe that culture, you have to take some chances on people, and, you know, and the, the reporter came back with, oh, what are you willing to gamble with, waiters, Cubans, and so forth, and of course, then the whole thing degenerated into a, as somebody said, at the worst press gangbang they'd ever yeah, seen. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
Why the hell did Mela go to that press conference in the first place? Was is one question you could ask? Why would he go? He he had just given his testimony. It was very innocuous testimony. They didn't even ask him about that. Yeah. They wanted. They saw Norman Mailer and they thought this is meat we can get our hooks into, and they went right after him. Well, I mean, I I give Mailer a lot of credit for uh, willing to appear oh, foolish a, before a before a conference like that. I mean, you know, because you know, as as we've seen uh, recently with uh, Dave Eggers and uh, the problematic. Thing with Zaytun, he has not talked with reporters, but Mailer did. Mailer was willing to say very foolish things, and and that is to his credit, and that is quite interesting. And so he's maybe it's just an impulse that is just now lost from our culture. But maybe a way of approaching this is to actually get into talking about how Mailer dealt with feminism. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's the wonderful um, response by Cynthia Ozick in Town Bloody Hall, which is one of my favorite favorite (laughs) favorite literary (laughs) clips of all time. you know, Jeremy and Greer also wanted to sleep with Mailer, was rebuffed by him. Uh, Mailer was singled out by Kate Millett's in sexual politics. But I'm wondering, you know, in trying to write about feminism, is it safe to say that his own ego kind of blinded him to misunderstanding, um, you know, the women's movement? I, he does say in quick evaluations on the talent in the room, you know, he doesn't have anything to say about women writers. And he says, what is no doubt... A fault in me. <laughs> so, you know, clearly he was aware that this was an issue, and yet he went ahead and went there anyway. He could never, he could never resist a situation when the, when the spotlights were on and he was in the center of it, and he really believed in his own powers of argumentation and wit and energy and the twinkle in his own eye. Uh, he believed that he could churn situations around. And indeed he could. I've seen him do it many, many times, difficult situations. He'd be disarming. Um, the Tom Bloody Hall thing, I don't know how recently you've seen it, but... Uh, About you, a year or two ago. Yeah. yeah, if you watch it, you realize that was, uh, while there was an undercurrent of anger and irritation and, you know, a, a lot of angry feminists, there was also some levity in it. Yeah. There was a no, lot was of very, joking. It's very funny. It's yeah. a very funny thing, and Norman would, 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 he would be also, kidding. He would also be very gentlemanly and fill everybody's uh, water. I, and that's what's so weird. He's, he's yelling back at them, but then he, and then simultaneously he's trying to be chivalrous, which is kind of like both admirable but also at the same time it kind of reinforces his own image well what you said when you started yeah. with the question did his ego blind him yeah yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> it did there's no doubt about it i think it blinded him you know there's a long, one of a there's a wonderful line in one of his letters and uh somebody was it was about the, it was about his movie making why he didn't have good sound and, and he said well people kept warning me that you have to have good sound equipment when you're making a movie so you know you're, you're going to go down the tubes he said but i was in my usual narcissistic fog <laughs> and, yeah. and and it's a true line because he was terrifically self-involved, uh, always watching himself, observing himself. Um, he, you know, he was his own his own experiment. Uh, I remember he for a while there. He was Bob Lucid and I were with him, and we were talking about this whole thing of self-presentation. He said, "Look, I'm a phenomenon to myself." I mean, I watch myself and I go, how the hell did I, why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? So one part of him was cool or was superior, was, was aloof and was observing the other part. Of course, it, it didn't hurt that he believed there were two parts always. Yeah. And one was, one was always watching the other. So um, he was terrifically blinded by the whole, I mean, for a guy that has great, had great cultural antenna, for understanding American culture and society. He missed it completely. He didn't feel the pent-up anger that was out there. He didn't see the storm brewing. He didn't realize that he was going to be sucked in the middle of it and indeed become the poster boy for 
anti-feminist. Yeah. Let's, um, inevitably, we're going to have to discuss Adele Stabbings, and we may sure. as well go ahead and talk yeah, about yeah. it now. What's amazing about this, aside from the crazed party that preceded it, uh, aside from the fact that Mailer shows up at the hospital and, she, and he, says to, he says to Adele that he stabbed her because he loved her, um, is how the literary world at the time largely took this in stride. Um, and uh, Lytle Trilling, for example, calls this a Dostoevskyan ploy. The endnotes reveal that you talked with Adele in April of 2012. Um, and wanting to know more about this, I was flipping around through the endnotes for that chapter, and I noticed that uh, while you had mentioned the last party, you didn't actually uh, mention any, anything you talked about with Adele during that interview. And I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering why that was. Was there just something you, you could not include? Was there, no. Were there aspects of this that um, um, I know... I know Louis Menand in The New Yorker took you to task uh, a mm-hmm. little bit on this for not including, for example, the petition and all that. But, you know, how do you, how do you walk delicately in a situation like this when you are the official biographer uh, and, and people are actually pining for new information to try to understand how something like this happened? And what did you, know, what did, what did you and Adele talk about? I've known Adele, I knew Adele for many, many years. Yeah. And before she, had, before she wrote uh, The Last Party, she was, you know, or, you know, commonly at the Mailer House for dinner and so forth. Um, that book, you know, was a wedge between them after that. That really, that really angered Mailer and so forth. Uh, the book is, a, is an extremely useful book. I cite, I cite it a number of times. Yeah. Uh, it's not uh, reliable when you come to facts, uh, dates, years, and things like that. Such as how? It's well. She she would mix up years when they were in Provincetown. She would have the dates wrong of when the parties were and so forth and so on. So I couldn't rely on it as a uh, uh, let's say a chronology of his life. What she was very good at, of course, was the atmospherics, the parties, the nature of the parties, her feelings, Norman's feelings, the feelings when they went to Buchenwald to see the ovens. I mean, she was she's a she's quite a, a pretty good writer, but it's a very angry book. And she said she wrote it to hurt Norman Mailer. That was her whole purpose. So I talked to her on the phone. At this time, she by this time she was in an assisted living yeah, situation. Yeah. Uh, conversation was it was friendly enough, but uh, she wasn't particularly uh, uh, alert that day. Let's say, and so I, I really didn't have much of a conversation with her. I told her that uh, I wanted to tell her that her book had been very helpful to me, that I had quoted it, and I thought that basically what I just said, that I relied on it for the, for the creation of the mood of the period, especially in the 1950s in Greenwich Village and Jack Kerouac drunk under the table and things like that, that I thought that it was very helpful to me and I, uh, I wanted her to know that. Yeah. But we didn't, go into it, we didn't go into a long discussion because I didn't really think it was going to be a fr- it was fruitful at all to try to do it, given the way she was at that point. You could have tried calling her again. I could have tried calling her again. In fact, I did try to call her again and I, didn't, I never got through. And uh, and so, I had her extensive. I mean, I had I had it down. I was on record what she, you know, the whole uh, the whole scene, the whole stabbing. Uh, I had uh, all the daughters and all of their members, and I had Barbara Wasserman, who was there at the party, was there at the hospital, was there all through the whole thing. She was she, and I had I had um, Anna Lou. Humes, too, Doc Humes' wife. So I had a lot of first-hand people in there. Uh, I had her first-hand account, and I thought, and I had Mailer's Diary, which no one had ever seen before. Yeah. That's the first time that's ever been published. So I felt I did uh, a kind of an encompassing job. I suppose I could have done more. That's what Manan thinks, but uh, 
uh, I felt it was a, I tried to round it out in a way that um, I was going to do it in a clinical fashion. I was going to not take sides. I was going to give everybody's perspective of it. And I must have had 20 or 30 source, newspaper sources as well. Yeah. So, I mean, why then did the literary world essentially forgive Norman fairly easy? That's a good question. Um, I think... Um, and, and as Menand argues, blamed Adele. They did. They did. All, they did blame Adele. A lot, of, a lot of them blamed Adele. They stood up for Norman. Uh, and I think unfairly, obviously. I mean, he said in court, I did a dirty, lousy, cowardly thing. Yeah. Uh, he never uh, exculpated himself from it, I don't think. He always felt it was the worst thing he'd ever done in his life. Uh, he told everybody that endlessly. The literary world felt he was a man of great promise, number one. Uh, number two, they felt that she had egged him on, which she had. They, they had a, they had a, a very tough relationship. Uh, number three, she survived. Yeah. Uh, and um, this was 1960. I yeah. mean, the fourth reason, there was a different world. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened. And I think one of the reasons he took it so badly uh, on the uh, uh, Abbott thing was they were saying, you know, you got away with it once, you're not going to get away with it again. And he, but he did actually manage to get away with it. He again. did manage to yeah. get away with it. It was, um, but it was a brutal. A brutal blow to him that this had happened, and uh, you know, as as uh, Barbara Prop Solomon told me, you know, he she just broke down in tears over Aiden's death when he heard the news. Yeah. So essentially, the literary world said Norman Mailer is worth a little risk. <laughs> well put. That's exactly what they said. It was a pretty distinguished group of people. Yeah. You know, Robert Lowell yeah, and Jason yeah. Epstein and uh, Trilling and and so forth. Pedoritz. I mean, you really Baldwin. had Baldwin. You had you had quite a group of people who were willing to sign that letter. So. Um, they didn't want to see Norman's potential extinguished because of this. She was alive. She was okay. She wasn't pressing charges. He was on probation. Let's move on was the message. And, uh, you know, in 1960, it was a different world. It would Today, he would be... It wouldn't happen that way. No. <laughs> that's uh, that's pre- a light way of putting well, it. Pre- it's pre-feminism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pre-feminism. Um, I wanted to get into some of Mailer's extraordinary uh, schemes. He had these get-rich-quick ideas, but especially, uh, <laughs> first of all, we had Wilhelm Reich's Oregon box, which, uh, for reasons having to do with his sexual philandering, was, of course, a, a key uh, aspect. He had the Kakutani file, where he was trying to actually find patterns in her reviews to predict what she would say about a writer. Uh, he had this football betting situation where he believed he could actually <laughs> connect biorhythms to a team's success. So, you know, my question is, is, I mean, I know he had a background in engineering, and in the Army he learned how to build stuff and maintain housing and all that, and he did that with his apartments uh, later on when he came back to New York. But it is fascinating to me how uh, he aligns his engineering self, his rational self, with these things that are clear quackery <laughs> they're just absolute the the offerings of charlatans and, I, and i'm wondering you know why he seemed to be so receptive to uh to to things like reich and and uh, biorhythms that other people at the time were basically uh saying this is a bunch of bunk well part of the reason is is that other people were saying it was bunk uh-huh. and he was not going to just go with the herd on I anything see. And, you know, that, the, the, it was the rational side of himself and the transcendental side. And he'd say, yeah. look, uh, you know, maybe we should just, let's just slow down a little bit here on tarot, on the tarot deck. May, maybe there is some <laughs> possibility. I mean, in other words, I want to find out for myself yeah. whether or not. And he got deep into the tarot deck. He yeah. understood it very well. And then That's he gave right. it up. 
Uh, and he got deep into the betting. I mean, the betting stuff went on for a long, long time. I've talked to his nephew, Peter Olson, about it. Oh, Peter, who's a, a poker player. And, um, you know, he was involved in writing down in all the numbers, and he was fascinated by it. And he thought, well, you know, maybe this little toy, the novelty item that I can buy, you know, once I pump, maybe maybe I've, I've stumbled onto some eureka thing here. Yeah. And I'm going to be able to, uh, to make some money. So there was always that jostling between it, that, that openness to mysticism. Look, Mailer lived in a numinous universe. He felt forces and omens all the time. You couldn't, you'd walk into a room and he'd say, I'm getting very bad feeling about this room. Right. I mean, he told me once that when he lived in Provincetown and he was, had a, a little studio apartment and he was up there sleeping, that a succubus was in the room. Okay. Wow. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I, I thought of putting Did, it Were you in. able to confirm this? I was <laughs> not able to confirm this. And I, but I remember saying to him, I said, what was it like? He said, very unpleasant. So he was um, open to all kinds of uh, emanations of uh, the invisible world, yeah. always. And Mailer, for all his rationality, and he could be extremely rational, yeah. um, had that transcendental side to him that never died. Yeah. What about Mailer's many accents? Because I had listened yeah. to a number of Mailer interviews and I had watched a number of TV appearances. And I always said, well, what's with the whole Irish brogue? And yeah. lo and behold, your book answers this. He had an Irish brogue. He had a Texas dialect. He had an English accent. Um, he told, uh, I believe it was Dwight McDonald, that, um, that basically this was a mask that he could use to get through to people. Um, I mean... There is a little bit of a theatrical background when he's at Harvard, briefly. Right. But I'm wondering, you know, why he felt the need to adopt these... Honestly, I mean, sometimes you're watching an interview and he'll have about four different <laughs> accents at the same time. Right. It makes no sense at, at, at all. And, and yet, you know, he, he's, he has this sort of dependable sort of smile and lean into the interviewer or whatnot. But, I mean, why... why is there anything else aside from that particular quote that you were able to find out as to why he yeah. liked to put on dialects? Yeah, uh, there is. A, he, uh, Dwight McDonald asked him this question. Yeah. And he said, he said, this was in the 50s. Dwight yeah. said, why are you putting on all these accents at parties? And he goes, he said, well, to tell you the truth, he said, I'm nervous and anxious. And he said, and it's a, it's a, it's a mask. And I wear it as a mask. Then he got, you know, he, he enjoyed it. He got a big kick out of it. I mean, he, you know, he learned the Irish one from Brendan Behan. Yeah. And he thought Brendan Behan was just about the funniest person who'd ever lived. And, uh, you know, his accent as Francis X. Pope in the, in the film, Beyond the Law, is taken right out of Brendan Behan. It's not very good Brendan Behan, but it hits his attempt to do it. Um, so he enjoyed putting on masks. It gave him a place, a beard something to hide behind. The last one he did was from watching The Sopranos, which he loved. He thought it was a great show. And he would put on sunglasses, and he'd look you up and down and say, who the, who the F are you? You know, you know, and he'd look you down, and he had this, he could do the mob accent. Yeah. Perfectly. I think it was his best one, actually. And it was real New Jersey. And, you know, he was born in New Jersey, and so he thought he could do it. So um, it was a way to escape being just Norman Mailer, the writer. Was it a way for him to essentially uh, try to escape his Jewish identity? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a way to escape his Jewish identity. It was a way to escape his identity as being an upstanding writer. You know, he wanted to show he had this crazy, nutty side. Uh, you know, it just came out. And he would do it all the time. And uh, at, at parties, he put on 
uh, southern accent. He did the southern accent all the time. Then, of course, he married Norris. Yes. She had a southern accent. He'd go, well, 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 Miss Snippy from Mississippi. That's what he used to say to her. She'd, she'd make some comment about something he'd do, and he'd go, okay, Miss Snippy from Mississippi. And, and, she, and she'd say, Norman, you don't sound southern at all. Because he'd say, I served in the 112th Cavalry, and I, I know southern accents a lot better than you, honey. I mean, you know, it was hilarious. But yeah. he never gave up. I mean, the, the southern accent originally came from the Texans that he served with. Reading about Norman and seeing his behavior and even, you know, thinking about him actually doing this, just talking about it objectively, I mean, I never, never met the guy but, or never, never even saw the guy, but he sounds to me like he's a really annoying pain in the ass. So what was it about his charisma that kept especially all these women coming back to him? I mean, why, mm-hmm. why do you think they were not able to uh, see uh, some of his extraordinarily pernicious behavior and some of his ways to really uh, manipulate people to, into, in, in feeding their feelings into his ego so that he could actually be more productive on the page and he could be more productive in, 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 with his philandering and more productive in, on various other uh, uh, aspects? Well... If you spend any time with him, he, he, was, he was a very charming guy. Uh, he was also very curious and interested in you. And so uh, if he were here right now, yeah. you know, um, at a certain point he'd be turning things around on you. Sure. And he'd be try- or trying to. Uh, How much did you tell him, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so um, that was part of it. People, uh, he was, no matter who you were, he wanted to know your story. Uh, when he first met me and he found out that I'd been an officer in the Navy, for five or six years back in the uh, 60s, he was endlessly curious about what it was like. Well, you know, what, what was your relations with the listed men's like? What was it like to be in the wardroom? You know, what was the captain of the ship? Did he come down and eat with you? He wanted to know everything. He was, he was insatiable in his curiosity. So that flattered a lot of people. Uh, with women, he could be uh, very gallant, very charming. Uh, women were very much drawn to him. He gave it off. You know, as Doris Kearns Goodwin said, he kind of gave off this musk or something. She said, you could tell he was a very sensual guy. Yeah. He liked women. Uh, he liked to be around them. But men liked him, too. So he had uh, charisma is, is the perfect word to describe him. He could be a royal pain in the neck. Uh, he could be argumentative. He could be overbearing. I mean, he could just yell you right down. Uh, but... Uh, I was telling someone the other day that they said, well, did Mailer ever get mad at you? And I said, yeah, he got mad at me a number of times uh, when I'd, I'd give him some smart remark back. And he'd did it come, come to blows? Or? No, it never came to blows. But um, one time he was up in his attic working, and you never bothered him up on the third floor. Never. You didn't go there. It was, it was verboten. And I had that question. I don't remember what it was. But, you know, I used to go over there almost every day. And I think I came at a time when he was in the attic. I knew when he was in the attic. I creaked up the three flights of stairs. I went up, and he was deep into his work, and I went up and, kind of, and interrupted him, just tapped him on the shoulder. And what do you want? And he looked at me like, what the hell do you want? You know? And I told him, and it was not important. Yeah. He laid me out in the clover. I mean, he just basically almost threw me down the stairs. Get the hell out of here. Don't bother me like that again. And, uh, you know, I, so I just kind of slunk down the stairs and so forth, and I went home, and uh, two hours later he called me up and apologized. It said, hey, Mike, sorry, I lost it. He said, I was, it was deep into something at that point. Come on over this afternoon, uh, an hour early, and let's have a drink. I have a couple of things I want to talk to you about. And that's the way he would do it all the time. So he, he really he didn't carry grudges, uh, I, with some notable exceptions. And even with Gore Vidal, they made up. Yeah. You know, Gore came up to Provincetown, and uh, I spent a week with him. And uh, 
It was a, one of the most interesting weeks of my life to be in the same room with Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer, pouring them drinks. I used to be the bartender, and get behind the bar, and the sun's going down, and Gore's telling stories about Tennessee Williams, and Norman's telling, you know, I mean, it, you know, they, they finally liked each other. They had an awful lot in common. I mean, they were both, you know, anti-imperialist uh, essayists, who came on the scene at the same time, and uh, they finally, uh, there was something, as Mela said, there's something in me that, independent of all our fights, is, is greatly fond of you. Yes. And, um, I have to bring up one of the most fascinating stylistic solutions that Mailer ever came up with. I speak, of course, of referring to himself in the third person, Armies of the Night, something that you actually do in this book later on. I did notice that. Um, yeah. you know, I was, not I, it's Lenin. Um, this is extraordinary because even reading it, and I, and I read Armies of the Night again uh, amidst the Occupy Wall Street stuff, and, uh-huh. and, and, and for some it really strangely resonated with the politics of the time. And I'm wondering if, if really Norman actually lucked out uh, with the way that politics were turning and what he decided to cover. And, and if that had not happened, he probably would have been done if he, if he had not actually had that to siphon off uh, his ego and to find the solution where reading Mailer instead of I actually allows you to understand him and actually allows you to sympathize with him in a way that, you know, some of his... Uh, more uh, narcissistic essays, you don't get that kind of thing. I mean, what, do you think he just he got really lucky, or or was Mailer the kind of person who he was going to last? He was going to find a solution. He was going to make his way back in simply because of his uh, excessive ambitions. Well, it's a funny story about how that all came about because, yeah. first of all, Mailer didn't want to go to Washington. Yeah. Uh, and he was sort of dragooned, shamed into going, and, and finally he went. When he went, he had really no intention of writing about it. But, of course, his literary brain was always working. And when he came home, uh, he told his agent, he says, you know, I might, have a, I might have a really good short story here. So originally he was thinking it might be a f- he was going to fictionalize it, yeah. which is, you know, one of his impulses. And um, then Willie Morris got involved in it and said, why don't you just write an account of it? And he said, Okay. And when he started writing, he uh, up in Provincetown, he was really bogged down tremendously. And of course, by this time, Mailer has been writing in, you know, for 30 years. Uh, you know, if you go back to his Harvard days, and uh, he's got, let's say, a, a card index in his head of, of ways to approach problems. And I think he he said he said, you know, it occurred to him that he had just spent a lot of time reading all this stuff about Picasso and he was going to write a book about Picasso. And he said that whenever Picasso uh, wanted to solve a problem, usually he invented a new style. And he thought, maybe I need a new way to do this. And he said, he said, I hadn't thought about Henry Adams since I left Harvard. And he said, but it stuck in my mind. And he said, it was there. And he said, I'll just try this. There's actually a false start to it yeah. uh, in which he, he tries to describe himself in the third person as the captain of a ship. And the ship is in a storm, and there's a, uh, the storms are political winds. And he's got this extended metaphor about ships, storms, ocean, that he was going to try to apply to the march in the Pentagon. And then he just, you see a line through the page. There's like seven or eight pages of this. And he said, I think he, then he says, I'll start with the Time Magazine story. I'll push off that, that piece. Now we will leave time to find out what really happened. And so when he got into it, he said, for the first few weeks of writing that way, it, he said it just seemed wrong and wrong. But he said, then after that, it fit like an old shoe. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, 
I had a great deal of difficulty. I talked to my agent. I talked to my editor. I yes. talked to my wife. How the how the hell am I going to put myself? You know, do I need to do it at all? And I said, well, look, it would be. There's a lot of stuff I could put in about my relations with Norman. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about our personal relations particularly. But there were times I was present. There were books that I edited. There were projects I worked on that I came in and. Um, you know, I, I I don't I don't like saying ah. I just I detested it as much as he did. Yeah. And so uh, I finally hit on doing it. When I first wrote, put myself in, it was in 1980, and it was of a passage about when he went to Germany with me and we made a film. I cut that out of it originally, but I ran into the problem there because when he went to Germany, it was the same week John Lennon was killed. And so in the book, when my editor read, he goes, "You got two John Lennons here. You got J. Michael Lennon. You got John Lennon." He goes, "This isn't working." So one of the things I did is I cut the passage out about Germany, and I appear shortly after that as Lennon, and I'm, I'm only in there maybe, what, half a dozen times. There's a few places in there where I say, Mailer told a friend. Yes. And I'm the friend. I didn't want to, I mean, I tried to limit it. I didn't want to overdo that at all. Um, going back to Armies of the Night, yeah. one thing I've long been curious about, and I was hoping you might be able to shed some light on this because you had access to his diaries. I mean, people have remarked upon the formidable memory that Mailer had in in getting all those details um, and just being able to get everything even down to the quotes. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, do you have any idea what kind of note taking he did? Yes, what I kind do. Of, oh, well, please. I've I've always been curious about this. He took no notes. Uh huh. He had no notes whatsoever, and um, he wrote it from memory. Lowell was astounded at how accurate he was. Yes. Dwight McDonald wrote a two-part review in Esquire and said the same thing. Yeah. They were astounded. Uh, now Mailer did, and if you look at his papers, you'll see that he did get in touch with Jerry Rubin, and Rubin gave him a lot of the mechanics of the march. Ruben was working with Dellinger as a chief lieutenant of Dellinger, and he was privy to all the organizational stuff. So a lot of the boilerplate, uh, the kind of the stuff you read about in the New York Times about which group and the coalitions and all that and how many people came, he got that from Ruben. Uh, Noam Chomsky, he also talked to Chomsky. Really? Yeah, and uh, his note said, Chomsky didn't have anything new to say. He said it all in his piece in the New York Review of Books. So he read Chomsky's piece and his memory of it. Of course, Lowell wrote... Two or three poems about the march, too. So he had that, and then you look in the file and you see Washington Post, AP, New York Times, you see all the news stories are there, but no personal notes of his involvement at all. It was all right from memory. Why do you think that this was the ultimate? I mean, to my mind, I don't think there's anything else in the Mailer catalog that is remembered as well as this. I mean, did he, did he watch films or did he see the footage of this? I mean, was why do you think this was it? Was it because he was really sort of down on his luck and it was going to be this or nothing? Or All of the above. Um, I, I think, you know, he... Remember now, this is in 1968, and he's still fooling around with the notion of the big novel, and he's only got 20 or 30 pages of that, the continuation of... Uh, Marion Fay and Sandy Joyce and Denise Gondelman. He's, he's got very little on it. He's completely stalled on that. So one thing, he stalled on that. This gave him an excuse and an opportunity and income to do it. He liked Willie Morris enormously. Morris was giving him all the space. It's the longest single magazine article at that point ever published in an American magazine, nonfiction. Uh, so he had that going for him. That Morris loved him and was going to give him all that space. Um, he was, uh, you know, 40, well, let's see, he was 45 years old, 44 years old. He's at the height of his, his 
uh, powers metaphorically. He's at the height of his powers physically. He's strong. He's virile. He's he's in he's in good shape. Um, his marriage is a little bit troubled, but still proceeding on to, to Beverly Bentley. So all of those things kind of coalesce with also being, he found himself, that he was in the center of the action at the march. He became the key, he was like the key figure. Even if he wasn't the key figure, he made himself the key figure. And of course, he gave the speech when he went the through the wonderful speech he gave to the cameras when he came out about they're burning the body and blood of Jesus Christ in Vietnam and Norman Mailer is a Jew, yeah. was the article. Uh, so it was all these forces tending at the same time. And then I think you had a, an absolutely extraordinary review by Alfred Kazin in the New York Times right. on the front page. M- maybe the most influential review, vying with Joan Didion's review of The Executioner's Song, arguably his two greatest books, arguably the two greatest reviews, that didn't hurt at all. The buzz started, and, you know, he wins the magazine award, and then he gets the Pulitzer, and then he gets the National Book Award, and then everybody starts reading that thing over again and saying, this is a hell of a piece of writing. Yeah. This guy has captured America, all the forces that are afoot in the, the, the country coming apart at the seams, and Mailer's standing in the center of the maelstrom watching, uh, you know, watch everything explode and, and collide. So... Um, the knowledge that he was the center of it, I think, gave him a great deal of uh, confidence to proceed. And then he found a way to detach himself so he wasn't uh, at least giving you the illusion that he wasn't dominating, you know, the th- by using the third person. So it's kind of a magical concatenation yeah. of, of circumstances that constellated into a, a, a bravura performance. Yeah. So one last question, and I think it's it's really it's really something that, like, some of my listeners will probably be interested to know. Um, I've been having a lot of conversations recently about um, just the decline of culture, uh, how cultural engagement has actually been on the wane, um, how we're very terrified to say what's immediately on our mind, and so this is creating this is creating a bit of a roadblock in terms of American expression right now. Uh, do you think that there is anything in this environment that could create possibly another Mailer or someone close to that or someone who could even last as long as Mailer did in the 21st century? Is there anything that could that could possibly, I mean, could it possibly be reproduced at all? Well, uh, you know, right now I'd bet on Dave Eggers. Uh, I think Eggers has the, um, he's, got a, he's got a barrel, he's got a quiver full of styles. Yeah. He's uh, interested in uh, um, the largest questions. Um, he's dabbled in magazines and all kinds of other pursuits. Um, you know, I thought his first book was a masterpiece of, of, of voice. It was a voice book all the way. Uh, it just, you know, it, 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 Mailer would, would have liked that book. I know he would have. He would have, yeah. he would have appreciated that book very much. Um, and I, you know, he isn't Norman Mailer. He's different, as you pointed out earlier. You know, he doesn't necessarily like to get out there uh, yeah. uh, as much as Mailer did. So he's going to have his own way of doing it. But, uh, boy, I'd like to bet on him. Huh. I, I like his work immensely. I think he's a terrific writer. Well, Mike, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out. It was great. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. All right. Isolate their heads and stay in their safety.